The scripture this morning is uh, from 2 Samuel 12, uh, 26 to the end of the chapter. Now Joab fought against Reba of the Ammonites and took the, city, the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Reba. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Reba and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we're just delighted to be challenged by your word. Father, change us, mold us, and shape us into people that you want us to be. We desire to be instructed by it and to live by it. Help us to do that. Thank you for this morning that we can celebrate together and worship you and adore you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see everyone here. The beauty of narratives is you get to talk about pickaxes and destroyed cities and reading passages in Scripture that you go, so? But as we have said a number of times, um, as we read through Scripture, that it's there for a reason. Uh, sometimes it's just descriptive, and it can be descriptive. Sometimes it's to point us to ourselves, to learn a lesson, an example. It's all of it is to point to Christ, ultimately. Uh, but then as God's people, um, uh, to really wrestle with this passage, to try to figure out what, is this, what does this mean without taking it out of context, without reading into it, to say, well, this is a metaphor which actually means this and means that. The, the struggle with passages like this, is, and it's a good struggle, is to sit underneath it and to go, what, what is God trying to teach, first of all, Israel, who's hearing the original audience, hearing these words, and then does the Old New Testament, the apostles, do they talk about the same idea and the same issue, and then how does that apply to us? That's what we're going to strive to do today, is to go look at the passage study it, what does it mean for Joab and David and Israel, and then how does that apply to the New Testament? Do they talk about it? And then how should we, how should we understand what this passage is saying to us or what God is saying to us through this passage? Um, and ultimately, what this passage really comes down to is, is honor. 
It's honor. And the Bible talks a lot about honor. It's kind of one of those words that we use as a church, as, as Christians, to say, we need to honor Jesus. And then you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means to honor him. That doesn't work, right? We talk about it on Monday nights all the time, like we're trying to define words and we use the word to define itself and the, you can't do that. So what does honor mean? Because the Bible talks so much about it beyond just this passage. For instance, husbands are to honor their wives. Children are to honor their father and their mother. Those who are lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Believers are to honor one another, to show honor to the widows in their midst, to give double honor to the elders of their local congregation. The church is even called to honor the marriage bed. This is all in Scripture. These are all passages that literally say, honor. And ultimately, God is worthy to be held in high honor as a holy king. And even in our society today, we speak of honoring those who serve in the armed forces or first responders. And yes, even politicians. So what is honor? What is it? Well, honor isn't something that can be touched or handled. It's not like I can go to the store, buy some honor, and then give it to you for your birthday. It's an action. It's something that is done. To honor is to hold in high respect, to revere. And in today's passage, Joab shows honor to David as his king. Now, this is, there's a lot of dynamics here in this relationship with Joab and David. Joab doesn't have the best track record with David. You can go back in 2 Samuel, you can read, read through that. And in fact, David will seal Joab's fate by asking his son Solomon to deal with him. And that's a spoiler alert for um, Solomon's going to kill Joab for what he did while, while David was king. But despite Joab's failures, and despite Joab knowing David's failures, because we just got done talking about Bathsheba and his, his, uh, his adultery with her, Joab still sees and knows that David is his king. He still desires to honor David. And he does this, and this is a big word, by subordinating himself to David. Now, I got that word from the theologian Matthew Henry. So that's not my own word. It's a great word. It's a big word. What does it mean to subordinate himself to David? Well, Joab has taken the Ammonite capital. Remember, they've been at war with the Ammonites and, and they gathered other armies from Syria and David defeated them. And, and, but Ammon is still there. Ammon is still being a thorn in David's side. And, and so Joab goes against the Ammonite capital, Rabbah, and he defeats them. It says he takes the city. and Well, he takes it and then has David take it. We'll get there in a second, okay? But Joab is hesitant even though he's taken the city to actually enter the city because then he, Joab, will be given the honor and glory as its conqueror. But he realizes that he is subordinate to David, just like an enlisted soldier is subordinate to an officer, or a general is subordinate to the president of the United States. 
Joab has taken the city and that it seems like he's defeated the city to a point that it's, it's about to completely fall. They're about to surrender. But he desires for David to get the honor in the eyes of the people of Israel. And so he sends for David. That's got a whole issue in and of itself. David should be there. But he's not, which is why he got in trouble with Bathsheba. He sends for David to come and finish the campaign off. Take this city. Now, Joab, again, has his own issues, but his faithfulness to David has not wavered. Joab may have been frustrated and disappointed in David's actions with Bathsheba and against Uriah, but he still desires, and to use the words again of Matthew Henry, to seek out his master's honor. And so, as David is the anointed king, and Joab is his servant, and Christ is our anointed king as the church, and we are his servants, this is how it should be for us today. Joab could have easily taken the credit for his victory or for the victory over the Ammonites, but he made himself less in order to make his king more. Now, don't hear me to say like he belittled himself. Joab went into the shadows so that David could go into the light. He made himself less so that David could get all of the glory. His actions teach us a lesson in subordination and honor to our King Jesus Christ. Subordination is not a bad thing. We like to think of ourselves as like the pinnacle of God's creation, us individually, not as humanity, like what Aaron was saying earlier. Like, no, God needs me. He needs Mark. He's called me here to fix all of his problems. Like, nah. He, he brought me to this world. He could easily take me away and you know what? The world would move on and life would be fine. He doesn't need me. He wants me but he doesn't need me. I personally am not the pinnacle of him and his work. His actions, Joab's actions, teach us that we are to be subordinate to our king. This is captured in Paul's words to the church in Corinth when he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. If we are children of God, if we are saved by the grace of God, then we are servants of God. And in everything we do from the simple and the mundane to the difficult and unexpected, it is to be done for the glory and the honor of God. It is, it is to be done to make Christ great and to be done with the utmost respect and reverence for him. Now, this seems weird. How do I brush my teeth to the glory of God? <laughs> Nobody else is going to see it except for my dentist, and that's once every six months, preferably, right? But it's about the heart. Where does my heart belong? Now, ultimately, does God care whether I brush my teeth or not? Like, is that 
grand, in the grand scheme of the universe and his plan, is that going to throw everything off? No. It's important to brush your teeth, kids. But it's about the heart. Is my life dedicated to the subordination of myself underneath my king to the point where even brushing my teeth, I want to do it for his glory? Everything we do is to be done to make Christ great. And because we're speaking about Christ, God in the flesh, to honor Him, to glorify Him, is to worship and serve Him. David was not to be worshipped, but yet he was still in high, held in high honor. When it comes to Christ, He is God and He is worthy of worship. And these last few chapters in 2 Samuel have really humanized David for us. When we started this journey, uh, this study through First and Second Samuel, we, we started at the beginning um, saying throughout biblical history, you start in Genesis and you go all the way through. You start in Genesis, you have creation, and then Adam and Eve and the fall, and they sin. And God promises that a seed of Eve will rise up and crush the head of the serpent. He will defeat the sin that has happened. And so there's this anticipation. Who is this seed? Who is this seed that's going to come and, and redeem and rescue humanity? And then Cain and Abel are born. And uh, well, no, they're not the seed. And then Seth, maybe Seth is the one. No, it's not, it's not Seth. He still dies. And you go through all of the, the patriarchs, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they're great, but they're, they're, they're not the Redeemer. They're not the seed. They're going to die, and they do, and then the judges come, and then you have Saul, King Saul, and you're like, oh, this is the guy. Oh, no, that's not going to, nope, he's, he's not the guy. Oh, what about David? David's awesome, right? I mean, even later on, it says we should have a heart like David's, and then you read about Bathsheba and Uriah, and you're like, uh, yeah, no, not quite. There's always this, yeah, but not yet. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's close, but no. And all of it is leading to the seed in Jesus Christ, who comes and he fulfills all of the prophecies about him in the Old Testament especially the one in Genesis chapter 3 where God says the seed will come. The seed will come. David is human. He is not the Messiah. But he is a type of Messiah to point us to the true Messiah. He is the anointed king of the Lord, but he is not the true anointed king. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He murdered her husband to cover up the sin. He minimized his sin before God, and that's just the last chapter and a half. But Joab's actions are a reminder that despite David's sins, he is still Joab's king. And as king, David still has kingly duties to fulfill, specifically the duty of defeating Israel's enemies and bringing peace to God's people. Joab knows this, and so he calls David. 
come and finish the job. Now, David does three things to fulfill his duty as king. First, David gathers all the people and he marches to Rabbah. David does what he should have done from the beginning of chapter, this chapter 10, chapter 11. This whole incident, he does what he should have done from the beginning. He goes to war instead of staying in his palace while his men fight. And in the end, he takes the city. A second, David receives the crown of Rabbah's king. To take the king's crown is a sign of power for the victor and submission for the defeated. It's a sign of utter conquest and total defeat. This is what David has done to the Ammonites, the enemies of God's people. And thirdly, he subjugates the people of all the cities of the Ammonites. Now, this gets us really uncomfortable in our modern sensibility because we go, that's horrible. Why would he do that? that? That was the way it was done in ancient times. You conquer a country and you subjugate the people. They become your servants. The conquered became slaves and servants of the conqueror, being put to hard labor. And for Israel, subjugation of their enemies means peace for them. Before we all get up, uh, we can get upset about this whole situation. The Ammonites were not innocent. All of God's enemies, none of them are innocent. And when they are subjected or subjugated by David, Israel receives peace. And just as Joab's example teaches us about our role as God's servants, David's example teaches us of what Christ actually did while he was here. Christ gathers, actually, he, he does it even now. He gathers his people those who trust and follow him, to wage war on his enemies. And not enemies like the army of Ammon, but the spiritual powers of darkness, the spiritual forces of evil. Namely, and we've said this over and over again through First and Second Samuel, the enemies of God, the true enemies of God are Satan, sin, and death. Christ, just like David, has defeated his enemies by living a sinless life, dying upon the cross, raising to life again, and ascending into heaven, where now he rules on the throne of all creation. He has taken the crown of his enemies, and he has subjected them and subjugated them under his power. And for those in his kingdom, for those who are his servants, the church, Satan has no power, Satan, uh, sin has no power, and death has no power. And you go, well, wait a second. I was tempted just yesterday. <laughs> yeah, but that doesn't mean it has power over us. In one sense, you could say we give it power over us. Because if we are servants of Christ and Christ has defeated sin and death and Satan, that means the only way that we give it power 
is by giving it power. <laughs> we stand under the power of Christ who has defeated and subjected all of evil in this world under his thumb. And the enemies of God's people are utterly defeated. And through King Jesus is when we find peace. Now our enemies, Satan's sin and death, may be like a cornered raccoon who will fight to the end and maybe even inflict some damage, but they will never defeat us because they're already defeated. Why are we to honor Christ? Why are we to revere and worship and glorify Him? Why are we to do all things for His glory and for His honor as His people? Now in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is witness to a scene in the throne room of heaven. There's a famous song that we've sung by Andrew Peterson. Is He worthy? Now the Father... In this, in this scene, in the throne room, the Father is holding a scroll containing His plans for the world and its ending. But when no one is found who is worthy to open the scroll, John weeps. He didn't tear up, he wept. Because, as my Bible study notes say, in my Bible, it says John longs for God's purposes to be accomplished, and he doesn't see how they can without a worthy candidate. God, these are your plans, but there's nobody worthy to... What's going to happen? And then the elders around the throne turn to John. <laughs> they literally turn to John and they say, Weep no more. Why? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the roots of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. It doesn't say he's going to conquer or he will conquer. It says he has conquered. He has conquered the enemies of God by dying on the cross, raising to life, ascending to the throne. And then as the lion enters the scene, as Christ takes the scroll from the hand of the Father, every living creature in heaven sings these words, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessed, blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Oh, what a scene to see. Why are we to honor Christ? Because He is the only one worthy of our honor. And like David was to Joab, so Christ is to us. We have, we have only one king. We are servants to only one Lord, and we are to give honor and praise and glory to only one, Jesus Christ, the true anointed King of the Lord. How does that not give you goosebumps as a believer? He is our King and he is good and worthy, the only one worthy of our honor. Awesome.
But how do we do this? <laughs> Prepare yourselves. It's probably one of the simplest things that you'll ever hear and one of, most, one of the most difficult things for us to do as God's people. How do we honor Christ? By subordinating ourselves to Him. And that's not, again, that's not a negative thing. If He truly is the King, if He is truly worthy of all glory and honor and praise and power and blessing, then it's not a bad thing to be the servant of that King. (laughs) If He was an evil King, yeah, that would be bad. But He's not. He is righteous. He is good. He is perfect and holy. Bosses, generals, presidents, kings, and yes, even parents can make mistakes, right? We can do things wrong. Our leaders can really mess things up, but our king never makes mistakes. He is always right. He is always good. He is always just because that is who he is. And let's be honest, even as children of God, we have moments or days or weeks that we struggle to subordinate ourselves to Him. And it's a struggle to obey His commands, even though we know that they're good and right. This is the best thing for me. I was, I was talking to Aspasins uh, this morning, my, and I've, I've admitted this freely and openly so that you can hold me accountable, which you guys aren't doing a very good job, by the way. I just want to let you know that. Cinnamon rolls are my downfall. You should all hide the cinnamon rolls each and every Sunday morning. No, that's not your fault. I wish it was, but it's not. I know a cinnamon roll is not good for me, and don't tell me you can have one every once in a while. You're a bunch of liars. You cannot have just one cinnamon roll. I know it's not good for me. Look at me. I know it's not. It's never good to put 1,200 calories, yes, 12, I've looked it up, 1,200 calories into your body for absolutely no reason. But man, they are so good. It's so hard. God says, mark your body as a temple. And I'm like, yeah, but that cinnamon roll. And that's just a small thing in my mind. That's not including the rest of the week. When God says, I want you to obey me, die to yourself and live for me. Whoa, that's different than a cinnamon roll. It's really not, but it it seems that way, right? And it's hard, or is it just me? And it can discourage me. It can get me down to realize how much I struggle to obey Him, even though I know what He says is the best for me. It's a struggle for us as believers each and every day to keep our affections, our emotions, and our love on Him. It's a struggle to fight the desires of our heart and the sins of this world. And in the midst of this struggle... We're reminded of passages like 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is why we read scripture. This is why we gather together on Sunday mornings. It's why we gather together one-on-one throughout the week or in Bible studies or small groups. We meet together to read God's word so that we are reminded that Christ is worthy of our loyalty and obedience and love 
We have to be reminded because we so easily forget. We are reminded that subordinating ourselves to Him is the only way that we can truly experience the peace that transcends all understanding. We are reminded that by honoring Him and even the most mundane of our daily tasks, that we are proclaiming His worth. And we are reminded that as His children, we were bought with a price that we are not our own. We are not our own master. Our life is not about us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own for you were bought with a price and so glorify God in your body. In those moments or days or weeks or months or years that we fail to subordinate ourselves to Christ, if we are His children, We don't stop being his children. He does not give up on us. We read a verse during scripture. Did you catch it where he says, God says, I'm pulling back in my memory, so forgive me if it's not perfect. That he is long-suffering because he chooses to show his steadfast love to his people who love him. Long-suffering means his patience for his children is never-ending in the sense that we are never removed from his love. Like David, we face the consequences of our actions. If I eat that cinnamon roll, I'm going to face the consequences of that actions. But does eating that cinnamon roll out of gluttony mean that I am no longer a child of God? You know, praise God for his long suffering. And that sounds simple, right? Like, really, Mark? You're comparing? Yeah. Yes. He looks up at heaven and goes, again? Thank goodness for your sake. I love you. And I will... I will love you forever. And so glorify me with your body, Mark. Glorify me with your mind. Glorify me with your words. God does not give up on us as his people. He is constantly working. He is constantly to use the biblical term, (laughs) sanctifying us. He's softening our hearts. He's slowly putting to death our love of our own desires and the desires of this world. And he will never stop sanctifying us until the day we find ourselves standing in his presence when we will be perfected and glorified perfectly. Despite all of our struggles, he will say to us, well done and good and faithful servant. Passages like this, simple and mundane as it may be, 
And we read it and we go, that's interesting. Can have a profound meaning of honor the king. If David is worthy of Joab's honor, how much more is Christ, the perfect king, worthy of ours? We honor our king by subordinating ourselves to him, to his word, to his commands, and not to ourselves. Because he is our king. And he is worthy of honor and glory and power and blessing forever and ever. Father, this is, oh, it's so convicting, God. It is convicting to know that even as your child, I struggle to honor you. But because you are long-suffering and you are patient with me, you put passages like this in front of my face and you say, honor me. Honor me. I am worthy of all glory and honor and praise. So honor me with your life. Whether you're eating or drinking, honor me. Let your heart be devoted to me. And I pray, Father, as your church, that we will hold to that, be reminded of that constantly. You are worthy of all praise and glory and honor. And for those who hear this word, soften their hearts, Father, if they don't know you. If they are honoring themselves, change the desires of their heart. Help them to see that you are the king of creation. That we will all stand before you one day on the day of judgment. And that only those who who are subordinate to you will not find disgrace and judgment against them. But loving arms and joy and peace. Father, you are, your son is worthy of our honor because he is the king who defeated your enemies and the only one who can give us and has given us peace. In your name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.